Chapter Twenty One, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty One More American Experiences. Martin Takes a Partner and Makes a Purchase. Some account of Eden as it appeared on paper, also of the British lion, also of the kind of sympathy professed and entertained by the Water Toast Association of United Sympathizers. Part One. The knocking at Mr. Pecksniff's door, though loud enough, bore no resemblance whatever to the noise of an American railway train at full speed. It may be well to begin the present chapter with this frank admission, lest the reader should imagine that the sounds now deafening this history's ears have any connection with the knocker on Mr. Pecksniff's door, or with the great amount of agitation pretty equally divided between that worthy man and Mr. Pinch, of which its strong performance was the cause. Mr. Pecksniff's house is more than a thousand leagues away, and again this happy chronicle has liberty and moral sensibility for its high companions. Again it breathes the blessed air of independence. Again it contemplates with pious awe that moral sense which renders unto Caesar nothing that is his. Again inhales that sacred atmosphere which was the life of him, O noble patriot, with many followers, who dreamed of freedom in a slave's embrace, and waking, sold her offspring and his own in public markets. How the wheels clank and rattle, and the tram road shakes as the train rushes on, and now the engine yells, as it were lashed and tortured like a living labourer, and writhed in agony. A poor fancy, for steel and iron are of infinitely greater account in this commonwealth than flesh and blood. If the cunning work of man be urged beyond its power of endurance, it has within it the elements of its own revenge, whereas the wretched mechanism of the divine hand is dangerous with no such property, but may be tampered with, and crushed, and broken, at the driver's pleasure. Look at that engine. It shall cost a man more dollars in the way of penalty and fine, and satisfaction of the outraged law, to deface in wantonness that senseless mass of metal, than to take the lives of twenty human creatures. Thus the stars wink upon the bloody stripes, and liberty pulls down her cap upon her eyes, and owns oppression in its vilest aspect for her sister. The engine-driver of the train, whose noise awoke us to the present chapter, was certainly troubled with no such reflections as these nor is it very probable that his mind was disturbed by any reflections at all. He leaned with folded arms and crossed legs against the side of the carriage, smoking, and, except when he expressed, by a grunt as short as his pipe, his approval of some particularly dexterous aim on the part of his colleague, the fireman, who beguiled his leisure by throwing logs of wood from the tender at the numerous stray cattle on the line, he preserved a composure so immovable and an indifference so complete, that if the locomotive had been a sucking pig, he could not have been more perfectly indifferent to its doings. Notwithstanding the tranquil state of this officer, and his unbroken peace of mind, the train was proceeding with tolerable rapidity, and the rails being but poorly laid, 
the jolts and bumps it met with in its progress were neither slight nor few. There were three great caravans, or cars, attached. The ladies' car, the gentlemen's car, and the car for negroes, the latter painted black, as an appropriate compliment to its company. Martin and Mark Tapley were in the first, as it was the most comfortable, and being far from full received other gentlemen, who, like them, were unblessed by the society of ladies of their own. They were seated side by side, and were engaged in earnest conversation. "'And so, Mark,' said Martin, looking at him with an anxious expression, "'and so you are glad we have left New York far behind us, are you?' "'Yes, sir,' said Mark. "'I am. Precious glad.' "'Were you not jolly there?' asked Martin. "'On the contrary, sir,' returned Mark. "'The jolliest week as ever I spent in my life was that there week at Pawkins's.' "'What do you think of our prospects?' inquired Martin, with an air that plainly said he had avoided the question for some time. "'Uncommon bright, sir,' returned Mark. "'Impossible for a place to have a better name, sir, than the Wally of Eden. "'No man couldn't think of settling in a better place than the Wally of Eden. "'And I'm told,' added Mark, after a pause, "'as there's lots of serpents there, so we shall come out quite complete and regular.' "'So far from dwelling upon this agreeable piece of information, with the least dismay, "'Mark's face grew radiant as he called it to mind.' so very radiant that a stranger might have supposed he had all his life been yearning for the society of serpents, and now hailed with delight the approaching consummation of his fondest wishes. "'Who told you that?' asked Martin sternly. "'A military officer,' said Mark. "'Confound you for a ridiculous fellow,' cried Martin, laughing heartily in spite of himself. "'What military officer? You know they spring up in every field.' "'As thick as scarecrows in England, sir,' interposed Mark, "'which is a sort of militia themselves, being entirely coat and waistcoat, with a stick inside. "'Ha, ha! Don't mind me, sir. It's my way sometimes. I can't help being jolly. "'Why, it was one of them in waiting conquerors at Pawkins's, as told me. "'Am I rightly informed?' he says, not exactly through his nose, "'but as if he'd got a stoppage in it very high up. "'That you are going to the Wally of Eden?' "'I heard some talk on it,' I told him. "'Oh,' says he, "'if you should ever happen to go to bed there, you may, you know,' he says. "'In course of time, as civilization progresses, "'don't forget to take a axe with you.' "'I looks at him tolerable hard. "'Fleas?' says I. "'And more,' says he. "'Wampires?' says I. "'And more,' says he. "'Mosquitoes, perhaps,' says I. "'And more,' says he. "'What more?' says I. "'Snakes more,' says he. "'Rattlesnakes. "'You're right to a certain extent, stranger. "'There air some catawampus chars in the small way, too, "'as graze upon a human pretty strong. "'But don't mind them. "'They're company. "'It's snakes,' he says, as you'll object to. "'And whenever you wake and see one in an upright posture on your bed,' he says, "'like a corkscrew with the handle off, a sitting on its bottom ring,' "'Cut him down, for he means Wenham. "'Why didn't you tell me this before?' cried Martin, "'with an expression of face which set off the cheerfulness of Mark's visage to great advantage. "'I never thought in it, sir,' said Mark. "'It come in at one ear and went out at the other. "'But, Lord love us, he was one of another company, I dare say, "'and only made up the story that we might go to his Eden, and not the opposition one.' 
"'There's some probability in that,' observed Martin. "'I can honestly say that I hope so, with all my heart.' "'I've not a doubt about it, sir,' returned Mark, who, full of the inspiriting influence of the anecdote upon himself, had for the moment forgotten its probable effect upon his master. "'Anyhow, we must live, you know, sir.' "'Live?' cried Martin. "'Yes, it's easy to say live.' "'But if we should happen not to wake when rattlesnakes are making corkscrews of themselves upon our beds, "'it may be not so easy to do it.' "'And that's a fact,' said a voice so close in his ear that it tickled him. "'That's dreadful true.' Martin looked round, and found that a gentleman on the seat behind had thrust his head between himself and Mark, and sat with his chin resting on the back rail of their little bench, entertaining himself with their conversation.' He was as languid and listless in his looks as most of the gentlemen they had seen. His cheeks were so hollow that he seemed to be always sucking them in, and the sun had burnt him, not a wholesome red or brown, but dirty yellow. He had bright dark eyes which he kept half-closed, only peeping out of the corners, and even then with a glance that seemed to say, "'Now you won't overreach me. You want to, but you won't.' His arms rested carelessly on his knees as he leant forward. In the palm of his left hand, as English rustics have their slice of cheese, he had a cake of tobacco. In his right, a penknife. He struck into the dialogue with as little reserve as if he had been specially called in days before to hear the arguments on both sides and favour them with his opinion and he no more contemplated or cared for the possibility of their not desiring the honour of his acquaintance, or interference in their private affairs, than if he had been a bear or a buffalo. "'That,' he repeated, nodding condescendingly to Martin, as to an outer barbarian and foreigner, "'is dreadful true. Darn all manner of vermin!' Martin could not help frowning for a moment, as if he were disposed to insinuate that the gentleman had unconsciously darned himself— but remembering the wisdom of doing at Rome as Romans do, he smiled with the pleasantest expression he could assume upon so short a notice. Their new friend said no more just then, being busily employed in cutting a quid or plug from his cake of tobacco, and whistling softly to himself the while. When he had shaped it to his liking, he took out his old plug, and deposited the same on the back of the seat between Mark and Martin while he thrust the new one into the hollow of his cheek, where it looked like a large walnut or tolerable pippin. Finding it quite satisfactory, he stuck the point of his knife into the old plug, and holding it out for their inspection, remarked, with the air of a man who had not lived in vain, that it was used up considerable. Then he tossed it away, put his knife into one pocket and his tobacco into another, rested his chin upon the rail as before, and approving of the pattern on Martin's waistcoat, reached out his hand to feel the texture of that garment. "'What do you call this now?' he asked. "'Upon my word,' said Martin, "'I don't know what it's called. "'It'll cost a dollar or more a yard, I reckon. "'I really don't know.' "'In my country,' said the gentleman, "'we know the cost of our own produce.' Martin, not discussing the question, there was a pause. "'Well,' resumed their new friend, after staring at them intently, during the whole interval of silence, "'how's the unnatural old parent by this time?' 
Mr. Tapley, regarding this inquiry as only another version of the impertinent English question, "'How's your mother?' would have resented it instantly, but for Martin's prompt interposition. "'You mean the old country?' he said. "'Ah,' was the reply. "'How's she? Progressing backwards, I expect, as usual. Well, how's Queen Victoria?' "'In good health, I believe,' said Martin. "'Queen Victoria won't shake in her royal shoes at all when she hears tomorrow named,' observed the stranger. "'No.' "'Not that I am aware of. Why should she?' "'She won't be taken with a cold chill when she realizes what is being done in these diggings,' said the stranger. "'No.' "'No,' said Martin. "'I think I could take my oath of that.' The strange gentleman looked at him as if in pity for his ignorance or prejudice, and said, "'Well, sir, I tell you this. There ain't a engine with its biler bust in God Almighty's free United States so fixed and nipped and frizzled to a most eternal smash as that young critter, in her luxurious location in the Tower of London, will be when she reads the next double extra water-toast gazette. Several other gentlemen had left their seats and gathered round during the foregoing dialogue. They were highly delighted with this speech. One very lank gentleman, in a loose limp white cravat, long white waistcoat, and a black greatcoat, who seemed to be an authority among them, felt called upon to acknowledge it. "'Hem! Mr. Lafayette Kettle,' he said, taking off his hat. There was a grave murmur of, "'Hush!' "'Mr. Lafayette Kettle, sir,' Mr. Kettle bowed. "'In the name of this company, sir, and in the name of our common country, and in the name of that righteous cause of holy sympathy in which we are engaged, I thank you. I thank you, sir, in the name of the Watertoast Sympathizers, and I thank you, sir, in the name of the Watertoast Gazette, and I thank you, sir, in the name of the Star-Spangled Banner of the Great United States, for your eloquent and categorical exposition.' "'And if, sir,' said the speaker, poking Martin with the handle of his umbrella to bespeak his attention, for he was listening to a whisper from Mark, "'if, sir, in such a place and at such a time I might venture to conclude with a sentiment glancing, however slantendicularly, at the subject in hand, I would say, sir, may the British lion have his talons eradicated by the noble bill of the American eagle,' and be taught to play upon the Irish harp and the Scotch fiddle that music which is breathed in every empty shell that lies upon the shores of green Columbia. Here the lank gentleman sat down again amidst a great sensation, and every one looked very grave. "'General Choke,' said Mr. Lafayette Kettle, "'you warm my heart, sir, you warm my heart. But the British lion is not unrepresented here, sir,' "'and I should be glad to hear his answer to those remarks.' "'Upon my word,' cried Martin, laughing, "'since you do me the honour to consider me his representative, "'I have only to say that I never heard of Queen Victoria "'reading the What's-His-Name Gazette, "'and that I should scarcely think it probable.' "'General Choke smiled upon the rest and said, "'in patient and benignant explanation, "'It is sent to her, sir, it is sent to her, her mail.' "'But if it is addressed to the Tower of London, it would hardly come to hand, I fear,' returned Martin, "'for she don't live there.' "'The Queen of England, gentlemen,' observed Mr. Tapley, affecting the greatest politeness, and regarding them with an immovable face, "'usually lives in the Mint, to take care of the money. 
She has lodgings, in virtue of her office, with the Lord Mayor at the Mansion House, but don't often occupy them, in consequence of the parlour chimney-smoking. "'Mark,' said Martin, "'I shall be very much obliged to you if you'll have the goodness not to interfere with preposterous statements, however jocose they may appear to you. I was merely remarking, gentlemen, though it's a point of very little import, that the Queen of England does not happen to live in the Tower of London.' "'General?' cried Mr. Lafayette Kettle. "'You hear?' "'General?' echoed several others. "'General?' "'Hush! Pray! Silence!' said General Choke, holding up his hand, and speaking with a patient and complacent benevolence that was quite touching. "'I have always remarked it as a very extraordinary circumstance, which I impute to the nadir of British institutions and their tendency to suppress that popular inquiry and information which are so widely diffused, even in the trackless forests of this vast continent of the western ocean, that the knowledge of Britishers themselves on such points is not to be compared with that possessed by our intelligent and locomotive citizens. This is interesting, and confirms my observation. When you say, sir, he continued, addressing Martin, that your queen does not reside in the Tower of London, you fall into an error, not uncommon to your countrymen even when their abilities and moral elements are such as to command respect. But, sir, you err wrong. She does live there. "'When she is at the court of St. James's,' interposed Kettle. "'When she is at the court of St. James's, of course,' returned the general in the same benignant way. "'For if her location was in Windsor Pavilion, it couldn't be in London at the same time. "'Your Tower of London, sir,' pursued the general, smiling with a mild consciousness of his knowledge, is naturally your royal residence, being located in the immediate neighbourhood of your parks, your drives, your triumphant arches, your opera, and your royal almacs, it naturally suggests itself as the place for holding a luxurious and thoughtless court. And consequently, said the general, consequently the court is held there. "'Have you been in England?' asked Martin. "'In print I have, sir,' said the general, "'not otherwise.' "'We are a reading people here, sir. "'You will meet with much information among us "'that will surprise you, sir.' "'I have not the least doubt of it,' returned Martin. "'But here he was interrupted by Mr. Lafayette Kettle, "'who whispered in his ear, "'You know General Choke?' "'No,' returned Martin, in the same tone. "'You know what he is considered?' "'One of the most remarkable men in the country,' "'said Martin, at a venture. "'That's a fact,' rejoined Kettle. "'I was sure you must have heard of him.' "'I think,' said Martin, addressing himself to the general again, "'that I have the pleasure of being the bearer of a letter of introduction to you, sir, "'from Mr. Bevan of Massachusetts,' he added, giving it to him. "'The general took it and read it attentively, "'now and then stopping to glance at the two strangers. "'When he had finished the note, he came over to Martin, "'sat down by him, and shook hands.' "'Well,' he said, "'and you think of settling in Eden?' "'Subject to your opinion and the agent's advice,' replied Martin, "'I am told there is nothing to be done in the old towns.' "'I can introduce you to the agent, sir,' said the general. "'I know him. "'In fact, I am a member of the Eden Land Corporation myself.' "'This was serious news to Martin, "'for his friend had laid great stress upon the general's having no connection, as he thought, with any land company, and therefore being likely to give him disinterested advice. The general explained that he had joined the corporation only a few weeks ago, 
and that no communication had passed between himself and Mr. Bevan since. "'We have very little to venture,' said Martin, anxiously. "'Only a few pounds, but it is our all. Now do you think that for one of my profession this would be a speculation with any hope or chance in it?' "'Well,' observed the general gravely, "'if there wasn't any hope or chance in the speculation, it wouldn't have engaged my dollars, I opinionate.' "'I don't mean for the sellers,' said Martin. "'For the buyers, for the buyers.' "'For the buyers, sir,' observed the general, in a most impressive manner. "'Well, you come from an old country, from a country, sir, that has piled up golden calves as high as Babel, and worshipped them for ages. We are a new country, sir. Man is in a more primeval state here, sir. We have not the excuse of having lapsed in the slow course of time into degenerate practices. We have no false gods. Man, sir, here, is man in all his dignity.' "'We fought for that or nothing. "'Here am I, sir,' said the general, "'setting up his umbrella to represent himself, "'and a villainous-looking umbrella it was, "'a very bad counter to stand "'for the sterling coin of his benevolence. "'Here am I with grey hairs, sir, in a moral sense. "'Would I, with my principles, invest capital in this speculation "'if I didn't think it full of hopes and chances for my brother man?' "'Martin tried to look convinced,' but he thought of New York and found it difficult. "'What are the great United States for, sir?' pursued the general, "'if not for the regeneration of man. "'But it is natural in you to make such an enquiry, "'for you come from England, and you do not know my country.' "'Then you think,' said Martin, "'that allowing for the hardships we are prepared to undergo, "'there is a reasonable, heaven knows we don't expect much, "'a reasonable opening in this place?' "'A reasonable opening in Eden, sir? "'But see the agent, see the agent, "'see the maps and plans, sir, "'and conclude to go or stay "'according to the nadir of the settlement. "'Eden hadn't need to go a-begging yet, sir,' "'remarked the general. "'It is an awful lovely place, surely, "'and frightful wholesome likewise,' said Mr. Kettle, "'who had made himself a party to this conversation "'as a matter of course.' Martin felt that to dispute such testimony, for no better reason than because he had his secret misgivings on the subject, would be ungentlemanly and indecent. So he thanked the general for his promise to put him in personal communication with the agent, and concluded to see that officer next morning. He then begged the general to inform him who the water-toast sympathizers were, of whom he had spoken in addressing Mr. Lafayette Kettle, and on what grievances they bestowed their sympathy— to which the general, looking very serious, made answer that he might fully enlighten himself on those points to-morrow by attending a great meeting of the body, which would then be held at the town to which they were travelling. "'Over which, sir,' said the general, "'my fellow-citizens have called on me to preside.' They came to their journey's end late in the evening. Close to the railway was an immense white edifice, like an ugly hospital, on which was painted National Hotel.' There was a wooden gallery, or veranda, in front, in which it was rather startling when the train stopped, to behold a great many pairs of boots and shoes, and the smoke of a great many cigars, but no other evidences of human habitation. By slow degrees, however, some heads and shoulders appeared, and connecting themselves with the boots and shoes, led to the discovery that certain gentlemen boarders, who had a fancy for putting their heels where the gentlemen boarders in other countries usually put their heads, were enjoying themselves after their own manner in the cool of the evening. 
There was a great bar-room in this hotel, and a great public-room in which the general table was being set out for supper. There were interminable whitewashed staircases, long whitewashed galleries upstairs and downstairs, scores of little whitewashed bedrooms, and a four-sided veranda to every story in the house, which formed a large brick square with an uncomfortable courtyard in the centre, where some clothes were drying. Here and there some yawning gentlemen lounged up and down with their hands in their pockets, but within the house and without, wherever half a dozen people were collected together, there, in their looks, dress, morals, manners, habits, intellect, and conversation, were Mr. Jefferson Brick, Colonel Diver, Major Pawkins, General Choke, and Mr. Lafayette Kettle, over and over and over again. They did the same things, said the same things, judged all subjects by, and reduced all subjects to the same standard. Observing how they lived, and how they were always in the enchanting company of each other, Martin even began to comprehend their being the social, cheerful, winning, airy men they were. At the sounding of a dismal gong, this pleasant company went trooping down from all parts of the house to the public room, while from the neighboring stores other guests came flocking in in shoals, for half the town, married folks as well as single, resided at the National Hotel. Tea, coffee, dried meats, tongue, ham, pickles, cake, toast, preserves, and bread and butter were swallowed with the usual ravaging speed, and then, as before, the company dropped off by degrees and lounged away to the desk, the counter, or the bar-room. The ladies had a smaller ordinary of their own, to which their husbands and brothers were admitted if they chose, and in all other respects they enjoyed themselves as at Pawkins's. "'Now mark, my good fellow,' said Martin, closing the door of his little chamber. "'We must hold a solemn council, for our fate is decided to-morrow morning. You are determined to invest these savings of yours in the common stock, are you?' "'If I hadn't been determined to make that winter, sir,' answered Mr. Tapley, "'I shouldn't have come.' "'How much is there here, did you say?' asked Martin, holding up a little bag. Thirty-seven pound ten and sixpence. The savings bank said so, at least. I never counted it, but they know, bless you,' said Mark, with a shake of the head, expressive of his unbounded confidence in the wisdom and arithmetic of those institutions.' "'The money we brought with us,' said Martin, "'is reduced to a few shillings less than eight pounds.' Mr. Tapley smiled and looked all manner of ways that he might not be supposed to attach any importance to this fact. "'Upon the ring—her ring, Mark,' said Martin, looking ruefully at his empty finger. "'Ah,' sighed Mr. Tapley, "'beg your pardon, sir. "'We raised, in English money, fourteen pounds, so even with that—' "'Your share of the stock is still very much the larger of the two, you see. "'Now, Mark,' said Martin, in his old way, "'just as he might have spoken to Tom Pinch, "'I have thought of a means of making this up to you, "'more than making it up to you, I hope, "'and very materially elevating your prospects in life.' "'Oh, don't talk of that, you know, sir,' returned Mark. "'I don't want no elevating, sir. "'I'm all right enough, sir, I am.' "'No, but hear me,' said Martin, "'because this is very important to you, "'and a great satisfaction to me. "'Mark, you shall be a partner in the business, "'an equal partner with myself. "'I will put in as my additional capital "'my professional knowledge and ability, "'and half the annual profits, "'as long as it is carried on, shall be yours.'" End of chapter 21, part 1